This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Such a pleasure to be with you again. Alice. Love the enthusiasm oh, this yeah, week. Yeah. On today's episode, we're going to look into the emerging industry of financial therapy and explore the concept of money scripts, which some fancy pants psychologists came up with to help us define our relationship with money. We're also going to answer your question on investing in the company where you work, and we'll end the show with a few thank yous and shout outs to our fine listeners. That's you. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Ryan. Ryan writes, My dad is 56 and wants to retire at 60. He has been presented with an opportunity to buy a small ownership stake in his company. 25k for 10%. What top three questions does he need to ask himself before making any decision to invest? Thanks. Love the show, Ryan. So, Ryan, to get this answer, we actually turn to Olin Douglas, friend of the show, and he's also the Motley Fool CFO. He knows a thing or two about investing in companies. And so, here's what he had to say. Hello, Allison. How are you today? I'm good, Olin. How are you? Thank you for helping us answer this question today. No problem at all. Well, here we go. Normally, the first question I would ask would be, am I willing to lose 100% of this investment? However, in this case, I would modify that to be, am I willing to lose 100% of this investment and at the same time lose my job? Assuming that I get past number one, which you can do and still be rational, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Number two would be, can I wait for an undetermined length of time to get liquidity? Then I would think about the business itself. How much do I know about the owner and the health of the business? Am I an expert in this business? Is someone that I know and, and trust an expert that is also investing? If you feel good about these first three answers, then the wrap-up question would be, do I think the potential reward is significantly higher than the risk that I've just stated above? If you get through all those and you get to a yes, then it sounds like you're ready. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead. Joke time! How many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb, bro? Three. And I don't know why I'm saying that. Just most things come in threes. Okay. Well, the answer is just one. So long as the light bulb wants to change. Ah, yes. Of course. (laughs) These are the jokes. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, your relationship with money is complex, rooted in emotions which are driven by your personal experiences. It's all so complicated. Maybe you should seek professional help. And by which we mean financial therapy. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Bro, what is financial therapy? Financial therapy is like traditional mental health therapy. You go to see someone, you have some sort of problem, and they're going to... Take a look at your past, take a look at your behaviors, and see. come up with some ways to help you change whatever it is you need to change. And it's something I've come to over the last year because I've actually now been about 20 years now into my financial services life in terms of when I was a financial advisor and now being at The Motley Fool. And over that time, it has become very clear to me that essentially financial decisions are emotional decisions. A lot of stuff we kind of already know. Most people know you should be saving for retirement, you should spend less than you make, you should not have a lot of debt. But we also know that too many people have too much debt and are not saving enough for retirement. So I just was very curious, like, why are people not doing the things they know they should do? 
And this has become a more common question. You, the whole idea of behavioral finance has become a big thing. We've talked about it here on the radio show. Um, behavior finance, though, generally tends to look at investing and often spends a lot of time identifying the mistakes people make, but doesn't really dig into why people make them and what you should do about that. And that's what led me to financial therapy. It is very new, um, but I'm now getting my graduate certificate in financial therapy from Kansas State. And I think it's actually the only program available. So that's how new it is. Yeah, yeah. When when does someone need a financial therapist? Like versus a plan, financial planner or all the other ones we know? A, the typical financial planner will break things down for the most part into numbers. You know, they'll say, okay, you want to retire at this point, you make this much, you need to save this much, you need this much life insurance, you should be saving this much for college. Now go do it. Now go do it. And, and many financial planners will tell you they'll create these big plans and people will not do them. Or they will come to the financial planner with all kinds of problems. Like, okay, I want to do all this, but I also have $50,000 in credit card debt. Or it's a married couple and they don't get along and they can't agree on things. There are more fundamental issues here that have to be dealt with before you can start figuring out, okay, how much can you put in to the 401k? So then, uh, going back to the original part of my two-part question, um, so you need a financial therapist when there's like a specific blocker that you can't get over, and you need to talk it out. Or? Right, and it's and it can be very difficult because, like I said, it's a new industry, and what people will do is they'll go to a financial planner, and they don't really have expertise in helping couples work out their financial issues. Mm-hmm. So they might go to a couples therapist. And the couples therapist might be able to help them work out some of those issues, but they have no financial expertise. A financial therapist is a way to sort of join both of those. It seems like a large component of financial therapy that I've been, because I've been reading up on this a little bit before the episode, um, is called Money Scripts. And uh, Paul Sullivan over at the New York Times, he did a big piece on this. Uh, he describes Money Scripts as the stories we tell ourselves, true or not, about money. Right. And uh, I think this. I don't know the exact reason why the term "scripts" was chosen. And I it's think it's a hard. It, I feel like "scripts" is a hard word to say. Right. And it. And from what I understand. So it, bear with me here as we go through this right. episode talking about money scripts. <laughs> well, it's really they're really money beliefs. But the reason I think they use the term "scripts" is because all of us talk to ourselves. We all walk around all day with these interior monologues about things about how we talk about how we feel about ourselves, about life, about the future. And we have beliefs about money that will affect the decisions that we make. So, and one of the first things that we did in this financial, my intro to financial therapy class was to go through a study by Brad Klontz and Sonia Britt, who are considered two of the people who are sort of the leading researchers in this field of financial therapy. And what they have come up with is an inventory that will determine where you fall along four major money scripts. And what's most important about that is to the degree to they to which those predict future behavior. Three of the four predict, or at least correlated to people with lower income and lower wealth. So if you identify that you are have those beliefs, you try to change them. One is correlated to higher wealth and higher income, but it also has some drawbacks. So we can talk a little bit about those. Oh, hey, let's talk a little bit about let's those. Let's talk a little so bit about those. Let's talk about, about the first one. The first money script is, and again, this is kind of the emotional, getting to the emotional underpinnings about your financial decisions, your beliefs. Um, And that first one is money avoidance, they call it. Right. And 
the beliefs that are often associated with this are money is evil, rich people are greedy, they must have gotten it in some way that was underhanded. Um, and so for these people, having a lot of ma- money may not be consistent with their values. So they will often do things to either avoid the issue or even do things to undermine having too much money. Because if they all of a sudden had a lot of money, that would, that would feel sort of incongruent to their values. And I think back to when I was in the seminary studying to be a priest, and then when I was a teacher, mm. I was definitely surrounded by people whose making a lot of money was not a top priority for them. Right. And I could definitely see being around some of those people, the belief that if you've got a lot of money, if you look at the people on Wall Street, the people in the big banks, they're doing it because they're greedy and might might be slightly evil. Right, right. The, what is it? that? Well, it's often quoted as money is the root of all evil, but I believe more accurately it says the love of money is the root of all evil in the Bible, right? I'm going to I'm going to believe you on that one. Listen to you pulling out a good Bible quote. <laughs> someone, someone pull up their concordance. Who went to seminary? Right. <laughs> one of us. One of us went to seminary, and one of us uh, went to church every week. Both of us have very religious upbringings. Hi, mom. Yeah. yeah, she listens to the show. Okay. Now the second money script is money worship. Right. And people who uh, have this belief are essentially convinced that more money will solve all their problems. Like if, if there's anything going on in their life, they just need to make more money. Um, and that you could never have enough money. More money is always better. And also, they equate money with power. Okay. And where does this where does this become a bad thing? Well, because it, it becomes what what um, actions does it drive that are bad? Sorry, that's probably right. a better way to put it. <laughs> and what's wrong with worshiping money? <laughs> cool. <laughs> Everyone should be doing that. No, this is the what what are some of the actions that come from this money script? That are negative. Well, to a certain degree, I mean, if you believe that there's, you could never have enough money, you're always going to be unhappy. Um, you could certainly be vulnerable to taking on roles and spending your time that is essentially the only pursuit is to make more money to the exclusion of other things, to the exclusion of your family, to the exclusion of your health, things like that. Um, that this one, as well as the other one, and the next bad one we're going to talk about, are all correlated also to compulsive spending. So the third one then, let's just get into the third one, is called money status. Right. And that's essentially equating your self-worth with your net worth. Um, and all, a lot of these, by the way, they start in your childhood. And some of the work on this has shown that, for example, people who have this belief that are equating net worth to self-worth tended to grow up in lower income households. So you tend to see people with more money as being more important, as a better life, that type of thing. Um, so again, it's very similar in that you are you are pursuing things, buying things, uh, yeah. um, to make you feel like you have a certain amount of status. Um, you you want you're the person who wants the bigger house because if you have a bigger house that means you are more important you are more accomplished you've done more with your life right right so it's not necessarily about having a pile of money it's what you do with your pile of money right and then you don't have a pile of money anymore right well exactly exactly yeah okay and the fourth one is the for the most part the the best of the four is that what we're calling it yes. I don't know money vigilance right and these are people who are essentially very alert about their money. They're on top of things. Having an emergency fund is important to them. Um, having a budget is important to them. 
So having savings is the thing that gives them more value, makes them feel more good about themselves. The downside of it is, of course, you can go too far. And there are people who have saved too much. You may have heard stories of you know people who die at the age of 90, and the, the will gets read, and it turns out that they've, they're worth several million dollars, even though they've been living in a small apartment their whole lives. You talked a little bit about how experiences are what really drive your money scripts, and your what you experienced often as a child is what influences right. it. Um, I think they talk about how the more traumatic the experiences are, the more ingrained your money scripts become, and right. harder to change. Right. So I listened to an interview with Brad Klontz, who came up with this inventory, and he talked as an example of people who grew up in the Depression, and he included the example of his grandfather, and his grandfather. Once he went through the Depression, never trusted banks again. So all his money was lying around his house instead of in a bank, and certainly not in the stock market either. Um, another example that he gave is people who grow up in houses where the parents say things about wealthy people, or maybe something bad happened in their life that was the cause of someone who was wealthier. They grow up with the money script of money is evil. Um, another study that we read in the class showed that on average, Men or boys are introduced to financial topics earlier in life than girls, and also boys get the message that making a reliable income is more important than girls. And that might explain what we know, something we know we have these days, is that is a gender gap in financial literacy. Generally, if you take financial literacy tests, on average, men will score higher than women. Um, so it's another example of how the way people grow up can affect their beliefs and what they know about money. In terms of the traumatic events, one study we read showed that um, basically after the Great Recession, 2009, some financial advisors showed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. And it turned them from being buy-and-hold advisors and investors to people who are trying to be what they call tactical, but that basically means trying to time the market. Mm. So this traumatic event of seeing their client's money drop 50% force them to not be able to be buy and hold anymore. They tried to be tactical, and that probably was a big mistake for them and for their clients. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to go through that and not have that change your beliefs about money. All right, so we actually took the, the quiz, all three of us, Rick too, in the control room. And so people can take this quiz online. How, like, should they just Google search like Klontz money script? They should, the, the best way to do it, we took an abridged version that we took in the class, but if you Google the actual article that was in the Journal of Financial Planning that had the study, at the very end of it, it also has an inventory that you can take. I think that's the best way to do it, because you can take the inventory, but then you also have the explanation for the answers. And the name of the article is, How Clients' Money Scripts Predict Their Financial Behaviors. Okay. And the quiz is just a, a Likert scale of one to six, strongly disagree, strongly agree, and it asks you questions like, I do not deserve a lot of money when others have less than me. Uh, it's hard to be poor and be happy. Money is power. Questions like this, and then you say, strongly agree or strongly right. disagree. So, looking at the results for all of us, yeah. it does not surprise me that for the three of us, we tend to be financially vigilant people. <laughs> we, do, not, we do host we scored, a podcast we on scored pretty personal high finance. On that. So, yeah. yeah. So, money vigilance, the scale of it was, uh, let's see, what was the scale? Eight of, between 8 and 48. I scored the highest at 36. 
I came close. You came close. 35. And you were, you were up there as well. Um, and the other thing I noticed looking at these, uh, in terms of money status, the three of us, not so much in terms of equating net worth to self-worth. The scale there was uh, 8 to 48. I was a 12. I was also a 12. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised that, well, okay, maybe I'm not surprised. Um, my money worship score, I, I, I guess that was a little bit up. In general, though, I was just kind of boring. Like, you're, Yeah, you're pretty solid along the way. My thanks. money worship was, was up there a little as well. The scale there is 7 to 49. I think mine put me as, your response style suggests that you exhibit one or more styles of money worship. And the questions there were basically things like, uh, Things would get better if I had more money. More money will make you happier. It's hard to be poor and happy. And so, certainly, everyone agrees with that to a certain degree. Yeah. And I think it, frankly, is also influenced by the fact that I'm looking for a house now. And if I were able to afford a more expensive house, it'd be easier. That would be easier. Um, but yeah, so I I had a little bit more of that belief than I probably would have thought I would have had. Yeah. What was this other quiz that you had us take? So there are two things. So these are the scripts, but then there is also the client's behavior inventory, and this is kind of important in that you have the beliefs, but what's important is how do those beliefs transfer into behaviors? Mm-hmm. So, and that inventory asked, basically determined whether you're a compulsive spender, compulsive gambler, workaholic, a financial enabler, meaning that you tend to give money to people even though you don't have it, uh, or financially dependent and that you expect other people to be giving you money. And that's, that to me is the crux of everything because the problems that people have with financial stability often come down to these things like compulsive spending. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, I don't know how you guys scored. <laughs> we're none of us are gamblers. Not none of us gamblers. are compulsive spenders. I uh, scored the one that I scored the highest on, and my husband's going to be like, "Yup," is uh, compulsive hoarding. Really? Uh, yeah. Your response styles suggest indicate that you are at risk of developing a money status belief. So I scored not the total highest for compulsive hoarding, but I, there's some of these. Like, yeah, I could game this if I wanted to. Yeah. But mine, I was. I was very high on workaholism, mm. um, and that is, and that is, <laughs> yeah, hmm. uh, and that is very. That's often very tied to. So, if you have a money belief that is money vigilant, it's not surprising that those types of people mm-hmm. also, also become workaholics. And and the questions they asked about whether you're a workaholic and are things like, basically, if you're not working, can you relax? Do you feel like you're getting enough done? Stuff like that. And I and I You uh, never feel like you're getting enough I'm, done. I never feel like I'm getting enough yeah. done. And if I'm not working, I am not relaxed. And it's not good. It's yeah. not good because it does have an effect on your family and things like that. Yeah. Rick, what was the most surprising thing for you when you took the quiz? I'm relaxing right now. At work. No, on vacation. Oh, that's true. As this is airing, Rick is on vacation. So And I'm not thinking about work and I don't feel like I'm not getting enough done. So future Rick, you. future Rick says, I'm feeling good. My scores are pretty much perfect in every way, as far as I can tell. I didn't look real close. I squinted my eyes a little. Yeah. But I think it pays to be on this side of the glass, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We don't need to dig in deep to it. All right. So what should I do with this information? Like, how seriously should I take it? Because you, you said this is a new-ish sort of way of looking at money, and financial therapy in general is, is young and 
So what should I what should I do with all this? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, there's um, Brad and Ted Klontz, the father and son team that have been at the vanguard of a lot of this. Wrote a good book called Mind Over Money. So if you learn more, want to learn more, that's a good place to start. Take the inventory. I think it's interesting. Um, I think if you are someone who is struggling to get your finances in order, it is interesting to know why. It is interesting to to look back on when you were growing up. What kind of experiences affected you? Um, in the interview I heard with Brad Clancy, he said he went to his parents and his grandparents and talked to them about what their experiences with money, because all of that does get transferred consciously mm-hmm. or not. And if you really are in a position that you cannot control your spending or your gambling, or you and your spouse can't decide what to do, look for a financial therapist. And you can find one at the website of the Financial Therapy Association because it is relatively new. Um, in some locations, you won't find that many people, but I can say, as my as it, the spouse of someone who is in the mental health industry, more and more people are doing things like this over Skype and email. So you should be able to find someone to help you. I just call you, or just call us. I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified at all <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that. People listen to our show expecting you to be an expert. I am an expert, but I will say this. So I've taken one class in finance, my intro to financial therapy, and I've read a lot. Aced it, I'm sure. Aced it, I'm sure. But I certainly would not qualify myself legally as a financial therapist. But I do find it fascinating, and I would not be surprised down the road, even actually I have a, a slight business plan for this, where my wife and I would have a co-practice. She would be handling sort of the mental health issues. I would be handling more of the financial planning issues. Because if you talk to anyone in the industry, they'll say, I encounter people with financial problems all the time, but I don't know where to send them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could you could like have one chair and just like tag each other out once they start talking about money. She'd be like, "Hold go. that thought. Let me go get the other bro camp, <laughs> bro camp and bro camp." <laughs> I think it'll work. I think it'll work. Cause I have got a thing that's unique and new. It proves that I'll have the last laugh on you. Cause instead of one head, <laughs> I got two. And you know, two heads are better than one. Time for some housekeeping. Maybe I don't want to call it housekeeping because that makes it sound really boring. Fun keeping. Hey, time, time for fun keeping. Time for some fun keeping. I asked you, our dear listeners, to send in postcards so that I could post them on our wall. Um, and one of you heard me. So I want to say <laughs> thanks to Shoots, who's over in Montana. He sent not one, not two, but three postcards from Yellowstone, West Yellowstone. Um, and he not only did he share these postcards with us, which I need to put up on our wall, um, he also sent along a letter, and I thought uh, had a really cool idea that I'm going to share with you guys now. So he writes, I also wanted to pass along a travel tradition from our family. We have two kids, one is four and the other two. Each time we travel with them, either my wife or I write them a postcard describing what we did on that day as we traveled. We mail the postcard, and when it arrives in the mailbox back home, we put it in a little box that contains all of their postcards. When they get older, we expect to give them a box full of postcards from all of our trips our family has taken. What a great idea. Isn't that an awesome idea? I love that idea. So I love that he heard my call for postcards and sent in some great postcards. Um, and um, I love that he shared this this idea too. So uh, if you want to go ahead and send us a postcard from where you live, that would be awesome as well. Uh, our address is 2000 Duke Street, 4th floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. And you can send it to Attention Me if you want. Um, dear me. Dear me. Uh, okay. 
Also, we wanted to thank Alan, who works at the Pretzel Bakery in D.C. He dropped off a whole box of pretzels, but he didn't stay long enough to say hi. It's such a bummer. So, uh, we'll have to come back and bring more pretzels. I know. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so Alan needs to come back, bring some pretzels, maybe sit in on a taping of the show. Anyway, that was sweet of him. Also, in our previous episode where we did a little tour of the United States, I accidentally said that on average, people in New Hampshire drink 4,600 gallons of alcohol a year. How did I get any work done? They're, they're always in the bathroom. This is so ridiculously inaccurate. <laughs> Like I can't believe I can't believe it came out of my mouth. And, and nobody and didn't, I nobody didn't say anything. Said anything. So it's not forty six hundred gallons of alcohol. How many is that a day? I know it's like over ten gallons of alcohol a day. I don't know why it's so funny to me. Uh, it's actually four point six. Slightly, slightly different. Slightly. Uh, I'm sure I was looking at my notes, and because I don't drink, I was probably zoned out the whole time. I really have no idea how I messed that up so badly, (laughs) but it's so funny. Anyway, sorry, New Hampshire. (laughs) You are not that drunk. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. And uh, okay, that's going to do it for today. I think that's enough. The show is edited soberly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, if you have a moment, please head over to podcast.fool.com to take our listener survey. Uh, a bunch of you have already done it, but I would love for more of you to do it. So if you have a moment, please head over to podcast.fool.com and take our listener survey. It'll help us understand who you are better and craft content that you will hopefully love. And I know we've asked you to do listener surveys before, uh, but that was just for Molly Flancers and this is a whole survey. Anyway, you guys don't need to know or care about that. But the point is, please go to podcast.fool.com and take our survey. Oh, for Robert Procamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay <laughs> foolish, everybody. 